He says, life is like streaky bacon. We have fat and we have lean. And he said, life is like that. You know, one minute we're crying because we're at a funeral and the next minute we're laughing because, you know, we've had a joke with a friend. Life is that sort of roller coaster. Welcome to the Book Society podcast, where we talk to interesting people about interesting books. It's really that simple. Okay, here we go. I am back with Professor Andrew Mangum. We are talking about Charles Dickens' classic Great Expectations, a book I had not read until you suggested it for the podcast. I learned when I started this show that I have not read a lot of Dickens. I had the exact same experience with this book that I had with our mutual friend, which was it took me two thirds of the book before I started to really enjoy it and I couldn't stop turning the pages. And I, I don't know if that's a relic of the style. By the end of it, it was the same thing that I just loved it and I couldn't, I couldn't stop reading it. So Great Expectations, Charles Dickens, 1861, was originally published in serialized form. It is broadly the story of a young man who comes into wealth and becomes very wealthy and then uh, becomes uh, destitute. And it is essentially a coming of age story. That's, I guess, the broad strokes. And we'll just talk about it just so you know, Professor, we assume everyone has either read the book or doesn't care that we're going to spoil aspects of it for them. So um, why did you uh, why did you choose this book? It's a novel that has been with me all my life, really. I, I read it when I was doing what we in the UK we call A-levels, which is the period immediately before we go to university. So equivalent to the last years of high school, where this was set on my course, and I read it. And I'd read some uh, other Dickens, but it was earlier Dickens, where Dickens tends to be a bit more comedic. He tends to be lighter in tone. And when I read Great Expectations, uh, it was my first example of reading the darker, later Dickens, the Dickens which really revels in the uncanny and the strange. And uh, this novel has been with me ever since and has haunted me in various ways. I've written about it. I've taught it every year since I began my career. Uh, my academic career. And uh, it always astounds me. It always surprises me. I always find new things in it. But I think what always appealed to me were two things. One was the extraordinary character of Miss Havisham, Mm. who I think is extraordinarily unusual and weird. And from the first moment I've read about her when I was a young man, she's haunted me. She's really inspired a lot of what I've done. And I can't get away from the very odd way in which she's described, deliberately odd and deliberately uncanny as a character. The other thing is a parallel I see between Pip's story and my own. So Pip begins life um, uh, in a forge, in a blacksmith's forge. He's raised very working class. And so was I. My dad was a coal miner, and I grew up in a very working class environment. But like Pip, I had aspirations. I wanted to be an academic. I wanted to go to university. And the parallels I saw with young Pip when I was very young, they were so close to my own story that I didn't see them as extraordinary as they actually are. Mm. But now when I look back and I read it 
um, as a middle-aged man and a professor, I see how unusual the story is in giving us the account of a working class character who has these expectations. And we get this extraordinary unpacking, this deconstruction really of ambition, where it comes from and the class guilt that comes with that. Mm. And I read it, I was rereading parts of it earlier and I couldn't help but cry because it really parallels um, my own story. And I can really hear my own story and the way in which Pip is writing, mm. particularly when he leaves Kent and he goes to London and he's taking his leave of his working class roots and his family. And he's trying to tell himself, it's okay, it's okay, this is fine. And then he bursts out crying mm. because he realizes that he's crossing a very significant threshold. And from then on, it'll always be very difficult to go back. So, yeah, there's a sort of personal, professional, but also some very sort of surreal reasons why this is my favorite story. Hmm. That's so fascinating. I grew up, um, I came from a di very different background. I come from a family of artists and I have become an artist um, myself. And so I, uh, I remember that part of the book. It didn't resonate with me at all, interestingly, when I read it, because I've not experienced that and it's never even occurred to me that that would be an experience that someone would have. And um, it's fascinating that that's, that that's the part that resonated with you the most. How I read the part where Pip is leaving is that his, his circumstances had, had already changed and I read it as a bit comical. Like he, I mean, this character is a poor young blacksmith's apprentice who comes into a great fortune and pretty much immediately turns into an asshole. Yeah. I, I mean, like from one paragraph to the next. And I thought, I, I, I read the book as like, uh, maybe this is just too surface of a reading, but it's a bit of an allegory of the power of money because there are several characters who have their fortunes drastically changed and they all behave in ways that, that are just odd. They all behave in very odd ways when they come into money uh, differently. Yeah. But, um, yeah. And I wonder if that's, if that's something you've pulled out of the novel when you've, when you've taught it and yeah, you have any it, thoughts about that. It's interesting that, that you find mm -hmm. that quite comedic because it is, uh, it is quite funny. And I think one of the great things about Dickens is he very often gets us laughing at things that are actually quite bleak and quite dark. Mm -hmm. So the opening of Great Expectations is that great extraordinary moment in a graveyard where Pip is just sitting by the grave of his family, who are all dead. Mm. And he's beginning to think about his life and his existence. And um, and he just starts to cry for no reason, because he suddenly becomes afraid of the the graveyard and its noises. And it's it, it, a lot is suddenly dawning on him. And of course, it's a great sort of look towards the moment where the convict Magwitch appears. But um, mm. it's quite a comedic moment because he describes his five brothers who are all born and, and all, all die in infancy. And he says he has a, an impression of them born with their hands in their pockets. And the reason mm. is because of the way in which these little gravestones um, are shaped. And there's a great sort of moment of anticlimax where they all have these extraordinary names like Tobias and Alexander. And then there's one called Roger, which is a great sort of um, it's just hilarious moment. <laughs> but he's talking about child mortality. He's talking about the fact that only about 50% of people made it through infancy mm. in the 19th century. It's an incredibly bleak and horrible thing. Yet here we are laughing at it. 
Um, and, and I think <laughs> that's one of Dickens's great skills is he often writes about very bleak things, starving children in Oliver Twist, but makes them comic in a way that mm. doesn't take away the, what, the, the severity of what he's talking about, but actually adds to it. And he, he described it as a, he, he, in Oliver Twist, he talks about it as streaky bacon. He says, life is like streaky mm. bacon. We have fat and we have lean. And he said, life is like that. You know, one minute we're crying because we're at a funeral and the next minute we're laughing because, you know, we've had a joke with a friend. He said, life is that mm. sort of roller coaster, to use a cliche. It is like a roller coaster. We go up and down it. And um, I think he learns from that to make us laugh and to make us cry, sometimes in the very same scene. Yeah, I think... Uh... That that is a that is a beautiful skill of Dickens is and one of the things I want I think one of the reasons that that reads to modern readers or I'll just speak for myself to me as initially kind of sh I don't want to say shockingly boring but like I like it's 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 just it's so different than what we read now um and it is very I mean he just he just describes kind of everyday things in beautiful vivid detail um and it's it seems slow until until you get into the lives of these characters and then they, they, they all seem so real, you know, even the ones that are, I mean, Miss Havisham, for example, is just, she's a cartoon character at the beginning at, at, when she's, when she's introduced, she's just an unbelievable person that you would never imagine could exist. And by the end, you completely understand her and what an odd character. And Pip, I guess my, there, there's two things I want to ask you about. One is, is, is Pip, uh, do, did you find, do you find Pip to be likable? No, I think there are moments where he's, meant to be yeah. dislikable he's meant to be um mm. uh, as you said he's an asshole you know he when he moves mm. to london there's that great scene heartbreaking scene where joe comes to visit him and joe has worn his sunday mm. best and um pip notices that he's sort of scrubbed himself clean and it's given him this sort of weird unnatural look because he's a blacksmith he doesn't mm. usually look like that and Joe is really trying his best. He's calling Pip sir, and he's trying his best to fit in. And Pip gets angry at him. He loses his temper. And there's mm. a great heartbreaking moment at the end of that chapter where Pip basically says to Joe, will I see you again? And Joe says, no, I don't think you will, because he's realized and he's gradually become more heartbroken as he's seen Pip's being ashamed of him. Mm. And then Joe wanders off into the city, and, and Pip runs after him, but, but runs after him, but can't find him. And I think in those moments, we're meant to think, actually, you're an asshole, there, Pip. And I think we're meant mm -hmm. to think that also in his treatment of Biddy. All the while, mm -hmm. he's chasing after these horrible people like Estella, and he's trying to be more like people like Bentley Drummle, who is one of the great villains. Um, of Dickensian literature um, <laughs> and he's ignoring the fact that he's got these wonderful humans in his life who really care about him who are very humble and yeah he's he, he goes through a process of learning and that's what great development novels do they give us moments where mm. the protagonist you think well actually you could have behaved better there you could have done better you could have been nicer but then they come to a great moment of realization and Pip is chastened at the end when he realizes his expectations have come from the convict 
rather than Miss Havisham. <laughs> and he's actually taught that class doesn't really mean much when it comes down to things like what is important, like love. Yeah, that's uh I guess one of the things that I one of the things that I probably miss reading Dickens as a, an American is just how how ingrained class was in that society. Um and that I mean for me I read like I read something like this and I think, okay, someone who was born a blacksmith's son comes into a fortune and is all of a sudden hobnobbing with the um upper class of the capital city in which he lives. And as an American that like I don't know how much that happens in America, but we are certainly taught that it yeah, happens all the time. it's the American dream, right? Yeah. And so, yeah, so reading that, that didn't seem as surprising to me. What I what I took from it was that it it felt kind of folksy. You know, like at the end, mm. the only real protagonist is Joe, who is the simple blacksmith. He's, I think, also the only one who really makes meaningful progress in his life. I mean, he's, his, he gets out of a bad relationship she dies, but he is there with her all the way through, even though it's a horrible relationship. He learns to read at some point in the book and he, uh, he, you know, does the right thing at every turn. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think he's the only character that comes off good and who re- or who comes off kind of unambiguously good and really progresses in a, in, in and, and I don't know, I don't know what message that sends. I feel like it's, you know, Dickens, who is an upper class elite saying that, oh no, the real people are the, you know, yeah, well, an interesting thing to bear in mind is Dickens wasn't always an upper-class elite. Hmm. And there is a very definite autobiographical element to Great Expectations in that we have this very humble... Um, he, he came from a class which I would say was very lower middle class. Hmm. And his, fam- his father got into a lot of debt. So when they moved to London, Pip had to go and work in a blacking factory, a factory that um, basically added, added blacking a dye to bottles and um dickens dickens yes and he he always felt very out of place there um he to be fair he didn't feel like he was um part of that sort of uh, child factory labor market Mm. but nonetheless he he knew what it was to to have nothing and then to have a lot Mm. um he knew what that progress felt like and he knew how how it felt uh, to be in situations where you had people looking down at you um, and also in situations where people look up to you and you're in a position to help them. Mm. And yeah, I think what's interesting about Joe is he has a very personal journey. So he doesn't have aspirations to rise above his class. The thing, Pip's great fault is that he wants to be a gentleman. He aspires to this this sort of chimerical position, this position which we find out doesn't really exist of being a gentleman, but he doesn't really think about how he's going to progress as a person Hmm. um, and how he's going to progress personally in that aspiration. Whereas Joe, he never has the aspiration to move above his class, but he does, as you say, find ways of progressing and find ways of bettering himself, which doesn't suggests that one class is better than the other Mm. and i think that's 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 pip's great fault which isn't entirely his own fault he's given it when he visits at his house and he's bullied by estella and miss havisham he's made to feel very insignificant Mm -hmm. and it's very understandable where those feelings come from i think yeah i guess that's that's exactly what i'm what i'm talking about is that i think that it seems like what Dickens is trying to 
present is that, you know, one class is not better than the other, or maybe another, even going further, that possibly the lower classes are possessed of more moral character, which is exactly what you would want someone in a caste system in castes beneath you to think. Yeah, I think Dickens gives us, particularly at the end of his novels, Mm -hmm. he gives us pictures of people from different classes cohabiting perfectly fine. Mm. So at the end of Great Expectations, Pip, who is now quite well-to-do, he visits at Kent, he goes back to the graveyard, and um, he's there with Joe's and Pip's son, mm. and he takes him and he takes him to this, the, where the novel begins. And that is not a moment where, oh, there's someone very high class visiting someone very low class. Mm. They just inhabit the same space and it works because they're thinking about other connections that they have, family connections, you know, connections through friendship and love. And very often in in Dickens's novels, we see that, we see middle class characters or the bourgeois characters coming and visiting uh, working class characters and they'll probably have tea or something. And and it'll work because the concentration is uh, is on very basic, very fundamental human qualities rather than class. So even though in the nineteenth century, the class strata was like rock. You know, it was like sediments of rock laid, laid down through millennia. It was very difficult to break through. It was very difficult to have one bleed into the other. But Dickens finds ways of of sort of creating a cross section. Mm through that. And in doing so, I think he's doing something very radical. He's, he's doing something also very important. Yeah, that's interesting. I think the, and, and I, fa- I also f- just noticed that the, a class system seems to be pretty rigid when there are no more opportunities to quickly gain massive wealth. And I think one of the reasons why uh, America and the, the new world didn't have this system is that there was, you know, there was uh, until recently, there has been a frontier to expand to where, you know, there's untold riches and land. And if you can figure out how to make a fortune, either mining gold or raising cows or just doing whatever, and that there was a, you know, there was a moment in British history where that just didn't exist and, and until, until you guys started taking over the rest of the world. That's right. Yes, that is right. We were very effective at it. Yeah. yeah in the 19th century, you know, the badness extended of the entire globe. Yeah, but I, I, I guess, yeah, it struck me that all the the fortunes in this book, because this is kind of a, a pivotal point in um, in Western history, was that you know the, the fortunes in this book were all made in the New World, and uh, you know the unexpected fortunes that the um, that Magwitch was you know uh, basically sent to Australia, where he was somehow able to become very very wealthy. Um, yeah, and this you know this story, I mean that's that's that that really happened. That kind of thing really happened. Yeah, that's often the way in nineteenth-century novels. Is yeah. when when there suddenly needs to be a massive influx of wealth, mm-hmm. um, it comes from abroad. Um, at the end of Jane Eyre, Jane's suddenly sudden newfound wealth comes from Madeira. It comes from an uncle mm-hmm. who dies. Um, you know, mm-hmm. again in the, in the New World. Yeah, it's it is a way in which there was a sudden amount of wealth. Uh, as opposed to the sort of ossified ancient wealth mm-hmm. that would have come through landed gentry. Mm. Um, it was a way in which people could radically become rich um, and suddenly have access to to the wealth that that gentility had. Mm. Yeah, and I guess, um, yeah, but there's still the old money, new money divide. I, um, oh, yeah, and a lot of snobbery about that as well yeah. in the 19th century. And, we have and a lot of, t- today. 
Mm. Still yeah. today. Oh, absolutely. But, yeah. yeah, absolutely. Um, I, I grew up in Westchester County, New York, near a country club mm. that would not allow Donald Trump to join because his family essentially, I mean, I'm sure they came up with a different reason, but they just hadn't yeah. been rich long enough. That's so he couldn't <laughs> join. Um, well, from our perspective, that's true of every American, you know? <laughs> <laughs> really We're talking about yeah. <laughs> longevity of wealth you know unless it goes back to william the conqueror i'm not interested <laughs> yeah those rockefellers you know yeah, they're, they're new new money. Money. yeah absolutely new money it's only 300 years old yeah yeah they've only produced two presidents i mean you know how many have the tudors produced how many monarchs uh, have the exactly. tudors produced um exactly do you think pip becomes a snob or do you think people's reactions to him make him that way it's, it's definitely people's reactions to him create a snob mm -hmm. that when he goes to visit Miss Havisham to play, enigmatically, he's sort of taken there to play, but actually he's been taken to have his heart broken mm. in this weird revenge scheme that Miss Havisham develops. It's there that he begins to realize that the terms he has for card games are very working class mm -hmm. and Estella draws attention to how coarse his boots are and how rough his hands are because you know these are very working class symbols and he says in the novel he said up until that point it had never occurred to me that my boots were coarse and that my hands were rough and that my names for um for jacks in CAD games was was wrong and it's then that he learns he begins to learn that he's considered inferior in certain contexts mm. and just to go back to our monsters of last week it it's also something that we see in in frankenstein that when the monster is first created he's an innocent he comes out into the world a blank page and he's just trying to survive in a forest and crying because he's so cold and we have a lot of sympathy i think for him at that moment but then when people start reacting to him because they perceive him as ugly and people start treating him very badly, he then learns to hate. And it's a very interesting parallel, really, that we all begin innocent and we all begin in a world where we're quite happy with our lot. But then other people tell us that we belong to a certain class or that we are different. And it's then that we begin to wonder about ourselves and perhaps develop aspirations. In the case of Frankenstein's monster, develop a deep-seated hatred that becomes violent. So um, the pip at the, at the beginning of the novel is adorable and lovable and sweet and is kind to a convict. But then midway through the novel, we find someone capable of extraordinary unkindness to the person in the world who loves him the most. Mm. But this is a societal gift. This isn't developed from some deep-seated problem, some deep-seated crack in Pip's mind or his personhood, um, it's given to him by a very inflexible society. Hmm. That's fascinating. I think that's a good place to end uh, this discussion of great expectations. Um, Professor, I'm going to ask you the question that I ask everybody to end the podcast, which is, uh, and this should be no problem for you, um, but to recommend two books to our listeners. Hmm. Actually, it's incredibly difficult for me. <laughs> um, well, I think everyone should read Dickens and I, I understand he he is difficult to read, but in a world where we read tweets mm -hmm. and we read very short things that get to the point perhaps a bit too quickly sometimes, reading Dickens' long descriptions 
um, require patience. But I think, you know, sit back, take your time, be patient, enjoy his prose, revel in his descriptions, revel in the way he describes things, and have a go at great expectations. It is, I think, probably probably his second best novel, perhaps after Our Mutual Friend, um, which I think <laughs> is, is a great masterpiece. And Bleak House is also there as, as one of the best. I would recommend Great Expectations. And another coming-of-age story I, w- I would like to recommend is a, a story called Becoming a Man uh, mm. by Paul Monette, which is autobiographical. Um, it's about Paul Monette. He's an American. Um, he's gay. And it's about his experience of growing up gay in the 1950s and 1960s. Mm. Um, and it's another great coming-of-age story, which I think is beautifully reflective of how one grows up different to the people around us, how one develops um, a a sort of armour against the world, but also how one develops comfort in one's own skin. And I think, uh, for my money, it's it's a great coming-of-age story which parallels great expectations. Hmm. Fantastic. Well, I, um, I look forward to checking those out. Thank you so much for joining us. And as soon as you write another book, we will have you back. Thanks so much. Thank you. I'd be delighted to come back. The Book Society podcast is brought to you by me, Lucas Cantor Santiago, and produced by Chris Peters. We do new episodes on Fridays. We have a lot of episodes. You can listen to some back catalog. If you like the show, please give it a review. You can review it on Apple or Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. It takes a few seconds. Helps out the show. Helps other people find it. And we really appreciate it. All right. See you next week. Until you guys started taking over the rest of the world, which, you know, good on you. I mean, (laughs) if you're going to do something, do it right. (laughs) No, not good on (laughs) you.